I'm thinking of selling my car. <laughs> the days of being a van man are quickly over, and so I've been thinking about this issue of ownership. And, um, and when I bought it, it was an interesting scenario that happened, um, but not really that different from normal. I had the bank check, the guy had the registration plates and uh, registration papers. I gave him the check, he signed over, I signed over, and then you know what happens, you drive away and that's kind of the whole thing. But it was a little bit different than that. Um, I'd gone and seen the car uh, with Heidi uh, days before, we decided that we wanted to go ahead with it, negotiated online, agreed on a price, it was a good price for the car, all of that. And then he told us the story about the car and why he was selling it. Uh, the reason he was selling the car is it was a family car and um, in fact it was his wife's car and in months earlier his wife had died from breast cancer. And they didn't have a need for the car any longer, but they'd loved it, they didn't really want to get rid of it, but it was time to let the car go. So we met in a petrol station in Woolloomooloo, he worked for the Navy, and, um, and we cha- exchanged all the stuff as I said. And as I drove away, I'd fluffed around for a little while getting used to it and all excited about the new purpose, new per- the new car, and then I looked out the revision mirror as I was about to drive away and I'd noticed that he'd walked across the street and he was just standing, leaning against a building. And I'd been maybe 10 minutes getting myself ready to drive off. And then as I drove off, oh, it's even affecting me now, he bent over and he was sobbing. Well, you can imagine, can't you? I mean, there was that example of um, purchasing something. And in the purchase, there's, there's more than just the car itself, isn't there? There's this emotional attachment that's part of it too. It, was, it wasn't just an exchange of goods that was taking place. There was something emotionally invested in this thing. And it was hard for the man to let go of it, to, to surrender ownership, even though we'd done all the things that demonstrated that he had given me complete ownership of the car. And as emotionally as invested as he was in the car, I never got a phone call from him later on saying, how are you treating it and what's going on with it? I'd like if you do this. He, he'd given it over. It was entirely mine. See, for a price, there's a full transfer of ownership and he relinquishes his claim on the car. It's now mine and I can do with it as I please. But he's obviously finding it hard to let it go. So you think about that idea when it comes to the idea of, uh, of purchasing something. Um, of course, there's other ways that you, you might think about having the car and all of that. And that's the idea of the loan. There's been times where I've loaned my car, not very regularly because I'm, well, anyway. Um, but there's been times when my son and my daughter is now learning to drive. In a sense, I'm loaning the, the, the operation of the car to them. I've lent it to a youth group on other occasions. And you know what? Not only am I legally invested in the car, I'm heavily emotionally invested in the car and I really haven't given it over to that person to say, do with it as you like. It's entirely yours. In fact, I'm very much interested to know that it's being treated well and it's doing exactly the thing that I want it to do because the loan is not the removal of ownership. But of course, there's, there's another way that this all works as well. Um, See, see, I'm talking about selling my car and I don't really want to loan it out. I really do want to sell it. I'd like to get something back from it if it's possible. But, but of course, I could just give it away um, if you're hoping that I might do that. <laughs> um, maybe under the conviction of God's word this morning, I might. But I'm not <laughs> supposing that will be the application from this. But you know what? It has happened uh, to me. Um, my, my mum and dad... Um, inherited my grandmother's car, which was a Mazda 323 Shades. It was a terrible car. It was an automatic, and anyway, but they didn't want it, and they wanted me to have it. 
And they actually gave it to me. Exactly the same, full transfer of ownership, but not for any price. Um, it, was, it was generously offered, and they said, that we, just, we want you to have this. If it can bless you, then bless you. Um, signed over the paperwork, did all those things, a full exchange of ownership. Now, I don't know if they were that emotionally invested in the car, nowhere near as the other bloke who owned my car before me, the van. But see, even after it was gifted to me, even though there was no exchange of payment, at no point did they expect me to give the car back, or if I sold it, if I'd give the money back for that. It wasn't just that they gave me the car and said, we want you to use it just on the weekends, but that's all. It's not to be used for work and it's not to be taken on long trips. Um, It's not that they wanted it back when it suited them. They gave it over. It was a gift and they said, here it is. I want you to take ownership. I'm relinquishing control and ownership to you. And of course, not really different on paper than something that's purchased for a price, but the generosity of the the spontaneity of the gift that's given. So if we stop talking about cars and go back to your life and start asking again who owns your life and what does it mean to give over your life? This morning you may have noticed through the songs that we've been singing that that idea of surrender has been the common theme. That idea of who owns us And I want to suggest that that idea of the transfer of ownership is a helpful way to approach Romans chapter 12 and what God wants to say to us, this idea of gift and sacrifice given to him, not as a loan and not even the idea of a purchase, but as a gift. Another way of talking about that idea is to talk about the idea of belonging to God or the Christianese word of consecration, to be consecrated for his use. Now, if you've got Romans chapter 12 in front of you, that will be helpful. And verses 1 and 2 is all that we're looking at this morning. And you'll notice in that passage that the word, the idea or the the word consecration doesn't appear. But the idea of offering your body as a spiritual act of worship is the phrase that describes what it means to set something apart for the purpose of being devoted to God. In this case, the devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about having a life that surrenders from self-ownership and is given over to Jesus. And it says that this is our true and proper worship that we offer God. And so when you return to the question, who owns your life or who's, under whose ownership is my life? I wonder how you go about answering that. Immediately might beg the question, well, how would you know? If, if you'd given over. There's no kind of transaction that gets signed and there's no paperwork that exchanges hands. And Is there some outward observance that you could demonstrate it? Um, on, on Friday, I think it was, it was International Pirates Day, you see. And, and I could dress up like a pirate on International Pirate Day and, uh, and I could look like a pirate. But it doesn't mean that I am a pirate at all. And in fact, even if I did do that, and I wish I had, but I didn't, but if I had done that, I I showed no obedience to the pirate code. I just looked like it from the outside. Is it like that? Is there some outward external appearance that reflected the idea of allegiance, the veneer of obedience, that we're given to this thing whole or half-heartedly, but in fact, it's all a show? You see, Paul's not interested in the veneer. He's not interested in the outward at all. 
And in these few verses, he sets us up for what comes from the following chapters about how you're going to know who's got ownership of your life. And according to what the Apostle Paul tells us here in these first two verses is that there are four things that we need to understand. In this idea of giving over your life to God, we discover, first of all, that it happens in a response to God's mercy. That's why the passage begins with the word, therefore. He's saying, in view of what I've already just told you. And Paul, at that point, is looking back, certainly to the last 11 chapters in the book of Romans. In light of everything that I've just told you, and maybe even more particularly, the last three chapters, which we've just jumped over, chapters 9, 10, and 11, this amazing idea that God has stepped into this world and has brought about an amazing reversal of fortune, that sinners are free from judgment and death, and it's all about God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, irrespective of your cultural heritage, your religious observance, any of that, it hasn't mattered. All are sinful and all find salvation in Jesus alone. And you have been set free now from judgment and death. You do not get what you deserve. That's mercy. And he's saying, in light of that mercy, live differently. Transfer ownership. See, go back to those crosses outside the hill of Jerusalem. The three of them. And to see the two criminals bracketed by the one who has found to have not been deserving of death. And one of the criminals turns to the other that has been heaping abuse on Jesus and says, I'm not sure that what you're doing is very smart. Listen, mate, we're here because we deserve this. Our behaviour and our conduct means that we are being punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man in the middle, he's done nothing wrong. Now stop the clock there and ask the question, why is there a man who has done nothing wrong on that middle cross? See, even the convicted criminal knows that the cross is there to punish wrongdoing and so the bloke can say we've got this coming but when he looks at Jesus he has to ask why is he here he's lived a perfect life and of course the answer is incredibly that this one criminal has started to put together has grasped on to the understanding that the one who has done nothing wrong is here dying and dying somehow to deal with the wrong that's in his life And it's with that thought in his mind that the criminal says, just moments from his own death, hey, would you remember me? Because otherwise it's destruction. Otherwise it's separation. Otherwise it's all over. It's just death. Hey, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't ignore that request. He doesn't laugh it off as absurd. He doesn't say, listen, I'd like to help you, but I've got my own problems right now. He says, you bet. Your assumption is perfectly logical and rational and it's exactly why I've come to this cross this day. Verse 43 of Luke 23, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now stop the clock again and ask, how can this thief get to paradise? How can a sinner be welcomed into God's kingdom? 
And when you wind it back a bit, you kind of expect Jesus to say to this bloke, listen, mate, you've left it a bit late. I mean, what do you, I mean, how are you going to, how are you going to live up to the expectation? You're cutting a bit fine. Listen, if you want in, this is what you've got to do is, and, but there's none of that. There is only the merciful declaration. Truly, I tell you, Jesus is saying, I'm the active agent and you're the passive recipient of mercy. You'll do nothing. The criminal will contribute nothing. He pays nothing. What do I need to do? Well, he's nailed on a cross to Jesus and what could he possibly do? With what time he's got left? Nothing. And so Jesus, in effect, says, just watch what I am doing because this is for you and you are not going to get what your sinful life deserves. Instead, you're going to get mercy. And it is that merciful exchanged, enjoyed by that one thief on the cross, that is no different to the great exchange that every one of Christ's followers enjoys. That's the mercy that you've received. It's the truth that we sang about in the first song as we gathered this morning, that we ought to consider Christ, that he is the source of our salvation, that he should take the penalty for me. Though he was pure and a lamb without a blemish, he took my sins and nailed them to that tree. My Lord and God, you are so rich in mercy. And Paul says, well then, in light of that, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, live your life for him now. Consecrated, given over, surrender ownership. And it's imperative that we start at this point. Because it's only when that love that God has for us, when we're captivated by it and thrills us with wonder at his mercy, that we would be motivated to live for him, to serve him and to worship him. Otherwise, it just feels like obligation or duty or like works. But here it's the overflow of a heart in view of God's mercy. Because here's the truth. If your love for God has paled off for you, it's slipped from your heart, then you can be sure and certain that you'll find the idea of obedience to God and the commands of God burdensome. They'll be repugnant. You'll still be sitting in the driver's seat, owning the vehicle, if you like, saying, I want to go my way and, uh, uh, and wrestling it. But in view of God's mercy, gift it, offer it, sacrifice it, he says. Paul begins and he says, listen, if you want to know what it is to truly worship God, to surrender your life, it is a response to God's mercy. He moves on and then he says to us that giving over your life to God means that our lives are offered as living sacrifices. In fact, he gives three qualifications. They are living, holy and pleasing sacrifices to God. And in order for us to understand this, we need to take our minds back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And remembering that God is a God who's actually set up some practices that people can bring things before him that will demonstrate their heart. Some of those sacrifices they bring, they do so for the removal of sin. They are sacrifices of propitiation. They will take or hold back or appease God's wrath at their wickedness. 
There are other sacrifices that follow on that are given as a dedication to to God, out of thanks for what he has done by removing their sin. Sacrifices for the removal of sin, sacrifices of thanksgiving for sin. And Paul is saying, Jesus has come and he has offered his body as the full and final sacrifice for sin. And the response then is the offering of thanksgiving sacrifices out of a dedication to God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And you'd have to notice at that point that it's calling on us to respond. As an overflow of the heart to the mercy that we've received, it says, I want to offer my body as a living sacrifice. And you immediately recognize that it's going to be costly. And in fact, it's what the rest of this letter is going to explore and what we're going to be looking over in future weeks. What it looks like to give control of our lives over to God. That surrendering, that heartache, that wrench from us wanting to self-govern. The time where we might sob and say, no, I want to do this for myself. But this is about relinquishing. It's costly. But not only is it costly, you notice in this passage that it's bodily. This is something that's lived out. It's not just a thing that we do in our minds, but we live it out in our bodies. The Christianity isn't just a theory. It's not a philosophy of life. It's an embodied understanding of who we are and how we respond. It's why Paul says, I urge you. It's an interesting word. It has a really long semantic range. It can mean something to kind of, I appeal to you. I'm giving you this idea to, I command you. And it's probably somewhere in the middle of that. Saying, listen, I can only tell you how to respond. I can't, I'm not forcing you to do this because that would make it a works, an obligation. But I appeal to you. In view of what you've received, then here's the logical response. To think about how you're going to live out your response in this body that you've been given, in this life that you have to live. The whole of you for the whole of your life to live for Jesus. Giving over your life to... uh, Terrible typo, sorry about that. Giving over your life to God means that our lives are offered as living sacrifices. Jerry Bridges... He's famous, he didn't think this up initially, but he made famous the idea that you ought to preach the gospel to yourself every day. That you ought to actually think about this embodied existence that says, I'm going to wake up and remind myself of who I am and I'm going to communicate the gospel to myself every day. I heard this week about John Stott, who died only recently, but in his 80s, he was known to have said this, that he wakes up every morning and he prays Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 to himself. And he says, here I am, and I'm awake. And I want to offer my body to you as a living sacrifice before I get out of this bed. I want to offer my eyes to you, and my hands to you, and my feet to you, and my emotions to you. I offer my life to you afresh today, Lord Jesus Christ. A living sacrifice. See, that's distinctly different from a dead sacrifice, isn't it? A sacrifice that's offered and then gone. But here is a sacrifice that we bring of our lives that gets up off the altar and lives, works, does the family thing, does the recreation thing, does life. It's a living sacrifice. 
Of course, it goes on and it qualifies it even more. The giving over your life to God means saying no to the pattern of this world and yes to what God is doing. It's in verse 2 in the Phillips translation of the New Testament. It's written this way. It says, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mould. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mould. And I wonder if, if you've been feeling the squeeze. The pattern of this world, the way this world operates. Paul says, do not conform to it. Don't keep in track with that. Remember, you've surrendered ownership over. You, you have a new master and yet are you still being mastered by the pattern of this world? In all of the ways in which it seeks to form you and your thinking and your behaviour. But don't you know that the Christian life is a resistance movement? That there's things you'll need to say no to so that you can say yes to what God is saying. And key to this, says Paul, is your mind, that it begins there. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Lose the battle of the mind and it's over. How do you renew renew your mind? Well, Well, it's informed and instructed by and guided by the very word of God. And God, who now dwells in us by his spirit, confirms his word to us, convicts us, leads us, guides us, transforms us. It's actually the fundamental function of the Bible to do this renewing work in the mind. It's actually as simple as that. If you want to renew your mind, read God's word. We began today's service by reading Psalm 1. It's exactly what it tells you to do. Draw water like a tree that's by a stream of the living word of God. Of course, you might have other things that you'll inform your mind or renew your mind with. But that's the danger, isn't it? Input in leads to input out. Word in, word out. Rubbish in, rubbish out. And if you thought about the, and this has been, you know, this is a constant challenge and battle, this, isn't it? You think about the, the amount of things that are informing your mind and how it's instructed. From the things you watch, the conversations you have, the books you're reading, the ideas that are moving about us, and how much of that sits against God's word? Is it rubbish in and rubbish out? Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Paul's saying, listen, if you want to know what it is to respond rightly, then there's a pattern that's at work in this world and the way to understand that correctly is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in fact, if you want some homework or something to do this afternoon, read through these first two verses and then go back to Romans chapter 1 and see how Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a reversal of chapter 1 where people are giving themselves over to a depraved mind. Here it is what it is to look like to have a renewed mind. And in all of that, Paul goes on and he says that if you give your life over to God, it's going to result in discovering and doing and delighting in the will of God. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. 
It's connected by a conjunction. Then, then. Because of what you have done, that renewing of a mind, then in consequence to that, you will know the will of God in your life. And you think about how often you want to know that. I want to know what God wants for my life and his will for my life. And the answer is he wants obedience, obedience to Jesus. That ownership passed over and says, I'm surrendering it all to you. And so when I hear Jesus say, this is the way of obedience, I'm to say, that's right. Rather than saying, I'd rather not. I mean, we sang it before and it was made notes as I was going through because I thought, that's right. This is the cry of my heart. Now, Jesus. Now, is that cry? No, no, don't do it. Don't do it. This is the cry. It's terrible. Or is this, this is the cry. This is what I want. This is the desire. This is the longing of my heart to live in surrender to you. Lord, at your name, I begrudgingly, I don't know what the word is for you, bow the knee, I resistantly, I gladly, it is what we sang, I gladly bow the knee. And this is the way that I long to walk in, to follow wherever you lead. Oh, Jesus, you are everything to me. I mean, we sang it, but living it. This is what Paul's saying, the idea that we might be able to approve and test and know the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. It's not about saying rather not, but saying, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. To take ownership. To recognise that we have been given something astonishing from God. And in response to God's mercy, we're called to live lives as living sacrifices. Saying no to the pattern of this world and yes to what God is doing. And in so doing, with a renewing of our minds through the word of God, results in us discovering and doing and delighting in the will of God. And Paul's asking us, who owns your life? What does that surrender look like? That we might make the living and holy and pleasing sacrifice to God. Because true worship is giving God his true worth. It's just not that time that we gather and sing. It's not the hour that we spend together this morning or whatever it might be. It is the whole of life for the whole of life. And so who owns you? I'm going to pray a prayer that speaks about the renewing of our minds. And this prayer may well be familiar to you. Will you pray with me now? May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God my Father Rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort the sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. And may his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, May they forget the channel, seeing only him. We ask it all in Jesus' name.
Amen.